David, hang on for one second. Surely. From Hyannis, we're going to go to Washington, our Washington Bureau, and uh, our Bureau Chief there, Tim Russer. Tim, what do you have uh, of late you can add to this? Uh, Brian, a family member has told some friends that the plane was on approach to the Martha's Vineyard Airport uh, when the contact was lost. They believe it was about 10 minutes out from landing. We have gotten better information uh, from both the airports and the FAA uh, through radar analysis uh, of a better location, uh, better possible location, and we are now centering our search about 17 miles west of uh, Martha's Vineyard, uh, the approach to uh, Martha's Vineyard Airport. Uh, indications are that uh, we may have found some debris, and, uh, and that's being uh, investigated right now. It has now been confirmed that all three bodies, John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife Carolyn, and her sister Lauren, have been found on the ocean floor off Martha's Vineyard. Friday, July 16th, 1999. For many of you, I assume you may not remember what you were doing that night or what you were doing that day, but many of you, I'm sure, remember what you were doing the following day. And the moment you heard that John F. Kennedy Jr.'s plane went missing. He took off from Teterboro Airport, New Jersey on the evening of July 16th with his wife Carolyn and her sister Lauren Bissett. And when they didn't arrive on Martha's Vineyard that evening, a call was made to the Coast Guard and by the morning of the 17th, it was an international news story. This week on the podcast, a behind-the-scenes perspective from the search, recovery, and press coverage of the JFK Jr. plane crash from insiders who were there. You'll hear from the person who received word of the call from JFK Jr.'s family that his plane was overdue. And a radio reporter who was one of the lone members of the press who was broadcasting live from the waters off the coast of Martha's Vineyard during the search efforts. For the Confident Communications Podcast, I'm your host, Molly McPherson. And I was that radio reporter. At the time of this recording, I am just returning from celebrating the 4th of July with my family on Cape Cod. I have been a longtime lover of Cape Cod, and we have longtime friends who live on the Cape, so that allows me to get my, my Cape fix. But I first visited Cape Cod when I went on a family trip from Minnesota to visit the Cape and the Islands, and I have a distinct memory of passing the Kennedy Compound on the ferry on the way to Nantucket off of Hyannis. And when I moved to Boston to attend Boston University, the first thing I did when I got to Boston was to squeeze a trip into Martha's Vineyard before school even started because I couldn't wait to get back to Cape Cod. And once I lived in Boston for good and eventually Washington, D.C., the Cape and the Island still is a part of my life. It's really a backdrop for my life. I spent summers in Nantucket. Christmas strolls in Nantucket. I got engaged at Sankey Light in Nantucket. My annual girls weekend to Martha's Vineyard that I will be attending in a few weeks. And even this weekend, I was there where I made the mistake of telling my 14-year-old daughter, Quinn, that Chris Pratt was also in Hyannisport at the Kennedy compound visiting uh, his new bride, Catherine Schwarzenegger, and her family, and that he could be seen in the annual parade. And she wanted to go. And I said, uh, no, we don't leave Chatham to go to Hyannisport. But when I was at our friend's house in Chatham, there on the coffee table was People magazine. And on the cover, 
JFK Jr. And at the top was a photograph of Chris Pratt and his wife, Katherine Schwarzenegger, from their wedding. But JFK Jr., the family of the Kennedys, it still evokes so much interest. The cover story on JFK Jr. is about a new book called America's Reluctant Prince by Stephen M. Gillen, and it explores the toll of his father's and uncle's assassination and the pressure for JFK Jr. to live up to his name. And what a name it was. And because it is so identified with Cape Cod, the family's presence can be felt everywhere, which is the reason why I wanted to record this episode for this week. Today's release date marks the 20th anniversary of the plane crash that took the lives of JFK Jr., his wife, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, and her sister, Lauren Bissett. So much has been written and said about the events that weekend, but I wanted to bring more of a behind-the-scenes point of view because of my proximity to the event, both physically since I was living there at the time of the crash, but also through some of my connections. In July of 1999, I was a newly married Coast Guard spouse living on Cape Cod, and we were headed to Washington, D.C. soon, and I wanted to find work as a journalist after we moved, so I picked up work as a reporter for a radio station in Cape Cod, WXTK. It was a news talk station. And I was working there as a stringer before our move. My beat at the time, oh boy, community stories, town meetings, local events, pancake breakfasts, driving up and down the Cape looking for any good story I could find. But I did love the work. Uh, Nellie Bly, I was not. But I enjoyed covering news stories. Big news stories didn't typically happen in Cape Cod, except when the Kennedys were involved. So before my time working there, of course, we had the JFK uh, awaiting his results from the presidential election of 1960 from the family compound in Hyannisport. Then, of course, there's the Chappaquiddick incident with Senator Kennedy in 1969. But the next big story on Cape Cod, this triumvirate of stories, was the plane crash of JFK Jr. in 1999. When I first heard about the plane crash, I suspect I heard about it the same way that most people did from watching television news, specifically cable television news. When I first heard the reports about JFK Jr. missing, I raced out the door, got in my car, and drove to the radio station to grab my recording equipment and headed straight to Woods Hole, which is a part of Falmouth, Massachusetts. Now, that morning, I knew I had to race out of the house to report the story because I had an angle. I was a new Coast Guard spouse and dependent, which meant I had an ID badge. And that also meant that I could get on to the station there. And I also had intel about what was happening. And I had a job at a radio station. So I was going to cover this story. And I remember distinctly that morning, it was a summer morning and traffic was already horrible. Anyone that's been to Cape Cod, if you have to drive on Route 6 or on 28 in the summer, it's next to impossible. Making matters worse, it was a Saturday, which is the changeover day for people who are renting on the Cape. Now, I may or may not have made my way down to the Coast Guard station with my ID, and I may or may not have donned a blazing orange Coast Guard life vest and hopped onto a Massachusetts environmental police boat with that vest to join a search 
looking for JFK Jr.'s plane. When people talk about the press and their insatiable drive and disregard for rules to get a news story, whenever I hear that, I always want to jump and defend reporters. But then I remember, wait a minute. Yeah, I I did that once. But there I was out on the waters and the press wasn't allowed to report anything from the waters at that time. It was virtually shut down to almost everyone except for people who were searching. But there I was with my cell phone, not my smartphone, my cell phone, a tape recorder and a microphone looking for the remains of JFK Jr. and his plane. The search area was focused on an area five to 10 miles off of Aquina, and that's on the western tip of Martha's Vineyard. And oh, how I wish the 2019 Molly could have told the 1999 Molly to grab a camera with you. Because I remember clearly sitting on that boat and watching the guys on the boat sift through anything they could find, combing the waters, looking for anything from that plane. And every time we saw some type of debris, you wondered, was that from the plane? It was like no other experience I've I've ever experienced in my life. And when I would try to report from the back of the boat, I remember one of the environmental police guys asking me what I was doing. And I put all my put all my recording equipment away. As soon as the boat pulled into Menemsha on Martha's Vineyard for gas, I quickly hopped off, got on the got on the dock there, and I quickly filed a story with WXCK and with WRKO out of Boston. And I did this while they were filling the gas tank. So I was watching them because I did not want them to take off without me because I think they knew something was up, but I could not lose my spot. So I very, very quickly filed some stories, and I remember some were live, and I tried to find the tape of it. I have it on a cassette tape of all things. But as I was filing the story, I talked about the search. I talked about what was happening. And so I was being broadcast down on the Cape and also Boston and all of the sister radio stations. And so those guys, they sussed out. They knew exactly what I was doing, but they did allow me to carry on with them and continue on the boat ride. Now, there was a time when the press could legitimately be shut out of a story. Remember back to President Kennedy what the public didn't know about the behind the scenes at the White House during that administration. Or like I mentioned, Chappaquiddick and Martha's Vineyard, how Ted Kennedy and his handlers were able to stop the clock on the press coverage and message Senator Kennedy out of trouble for the death of the staffer, Mary Jo Kopechny. The relationship between the press and public figures has changed dramatically since the mid-20th century compared to today with the First Amendment and all, but the press has expanded to newspaper, radio, television, and cable news, and then eventually the internet. And with this change for the public consumption of news is how the news has reported it. But if you remember back to technology in 1999, most people were getting their news from cable news. There was still broadcast news, which people watched, the local affiliates, the national affiliates, ABC, CBS, and NBC. We had radio, we had newspaper. And it was a time of big news stories, and these stories spread. But the JFK story, the plane crash story, was different because it had that Kennedy touch of controlling the press. Now, what you'll hear from my guests is that the Kennedy family was dealing with yet another tragedy to their family and wanted to keep the story contained. And with the help of the White House, they were able to do so. 
So the press was virtually shut down from reporting off the waters of Martha's Vineyard. And since the Coast Guard was patrolling the waters, they could spot the reporters. And they could also monitor press reports and they could find out where these reporters were getting their information. So they could silence the press. One of the Coasties told me that in one of the meetings that the Coast Guard was having, the Admiral at the time had asked, who is this woman reporting from the waters? Find her and stop her. No one should be reporting from the waters off of Martha's Vineyard. Little did he know that it was a Coast Guard spouse at the time doing that. But this story was a different story because it was a Kennedy story and it happened on Cape Cod. And it was during the presidency of a man who greatly admired the family, President Clinton. As the search continues, I want to express our family support and offer our prayers and those of all Americans for John Kennedy Jr., his wife Carolyn, her sister Lauren, and to their fine families. I also want to thank the Coast Guard and all those who have worked so hard in this endeavor. That was President Clinton speaking on the lawn of the White House two days after the crash when it was still in the search phase. The message, if you heard, was clear. He was going to offer support and resources to help the Kennedy family recover the wreckage and by extension contain the story because he felt the family deserved the privacy for the sacrifice made by so many members of the Kennedy family. Now, would that ever happen today? Not likely. But let's go back to the beginning. My guest is Captain W. Russell Webster. He's a retired Coast Guard captain who now works as a New England Regional Administrator for FEMA. However, at the time, he was serving as the commander of what was then known as Coast Guard Group Woods Hole, located in Falmouth. And if you ever were to hop on a ferry to go to Martha's Vineyard, the slow ferry, if you look over before you hop on the ferry, you can see Group Woods Hole. This is the story of JFK Jr.'s plane crash as it happened from the inside. Hello, Captain Webster. Thank you for joining me on the Confident Communications podcast. Hello. Hey, good morning, uh, Molly. How are you? I'm, I'm, I'm very happy, um, one, because you're joining me today on this podcast. Uh, when I looked at the calendar and saw that we were coming up on the 20th anniversary of JFK Jr.'s plane crash. My mind went back to that day because I was living in Cape Cod at the time. And I thought I have to do a podcast on this from just the point of view of what was happening that day. But you were the first person that I thought of because every time I go back to Cape Cod and I was there this weekend, I think back to that weekend. And you really had a very unique perspective in your role as the commander, correct, of, of Coast Guard Group Woods Hole? Yeah, I was the Group Woods Hole commander, which had the water area from uh, the Rhode Island border up around the Duxbury and out 200 miles. I had 15 Coast Guard units, about 1,500 people who conducted about 1,200 search and rescue cases and about 1,500 law enforcement cases every year. And that's that's a, a very, very big position. And for anyone that's that's visited Martha's Vineyard, many of them have seen where you worked. You know, if anyone walks across to get onto the ferry to go to Martha's Vineyard, uh, no matter if they're from Massachusetts or not, they've seen the station right there in Woods Hole. 
it's open to the public where people can see it, correct? Yeah, uh, which holds a bucolic uh, location with stunning scenery. Uh, I was fortunate enough to have resided in the Napska Point Lightkeeper's Quarters for, for three years there. And that's where I was with 17 of my friends uh, at the time of the first notification of John F. Kennedy Jr.'s airplane crash because it was on the first anniversary uh, of me taking command at Woodsole. So I had a, a lot of people in my house that were uh, uh, very interested in what was happening. Now that's interesting. So it, was it so the year to the day that you took over as as commander and you were living in Napska Light, which is a great place to live with your family, I can imagine, having lived down there. Uh, but when that happened, most people associate uh, the anniversary, July 16th, and you'll hear all the news reports, as everyone will hear now. But most people heard of this plane crash on July 17th when they woke up on Saturday morning. You, on the other hand, I assume, heard it after it happened, correct? Well, uh, actually, it was a, a very early morning notification, the first first call that came into the Coast Guard was at 1.55 a.m. on the 17th from family friend Lee Radswell, and uh, that information was quickly relayed to the 1st Coast Guard District uh, Command and the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center, uh, and they began an immediate water search between uh, Long Island and Martha's Vineyard over a 100-mile track. It was members of the Kennedy family. They had gathered in Hyannisport. There was a wedding of, of Rory, who's the daughter of the late Senator Robert Kennedy. So here we are on early, early Saturday morning. So before most people are awake, before the press even knows anything is happening, you're already at the station and you're already working. Did anyone know at that time, um, even though the search was Long Island all the way up to Cape Cod, that's a huge search area. Did anyone know um, that it should, were, was anyone aware that he was coming into Martha's Vineyard? Did you know at the time that you needed to shrink the search area? What was it like? No, I, initially uh, we, we knew of the expected arrival time uh, at Martha's Vineyard. Um, however, we didn't know because of the visual flight plan that was filed as opposed to something uh, more formal where uh, it would be constant radar track. Uh, we had to search that 100-mile track or about 10,000 square miles uh, initially. And within, within a few hours uh, after that early morning stand-up uh, at Groupwoods Hall, uh, parts of the wreckage started to wash ashore on Philbin Beach uh, on uh, Martha's Vineyard. And that was... Uh, a clear indication that something catastrophic had happened. And I think probably a few hours later, uh, let's call it late morning, the Air Force Rescue Coordination Center had uh, some more precise information that showed that the airplane was in a slow descent about 9.45 p.m. the night before on the 16th, uh, about 17 miles southwest of Martha's Vineyard. When I was alerted in the morning when this had happened, the first thing I did was grab, uh, you know, grab all my recording gear and being newly married to a Coast Guard officer, started making phone calls <laughs> to the Coast Guard. And one was to uh, Master Chief uh, Jack Downey, who was in Port Judith. And he's one of those old salty coasties that knew right away. He said, you know, a lot of the search is 
is off of Block Island. You know, it's this huge search event. But he he knew, he said, if it's Martha's Vineyard, the wreckage or they'll be it will be seen around the approach of Martha's Vineyard. So back at that time, do you remember there being a lot of confusion in in that Saturday morning in terms of where to search, or did the Coast Guard know right away where they were going and where they were looking? Well, it, it, first of all, there's always a lot of confusion, uh, and no one has a perfect plan when. Uh, Someone like John F. Kennedy Jr. or another luminary um, is at risk. I, I think there was initially uh, a good amount of confusion mm-hmm. because of the initial ambiguity of where where he might have been at any moment. There was discussion uh, about uh, well, he might have he might have uh, run into some difficult weather or visibility that challenged his his flying abilities and he might have put into a small airport and just not let anybody know mm-hmm. where he was. But I will tell you by mid morning uh, on the 17th, it, it became clear based on the debris that uh, he was fairly close uh, to Martha's Vineyard. And within, uh, within a few hours after that early effort uh, in that much larger area, we refocused immediately to the area that focused on his approach. Now that's interesting because I know as you relate it to me, even though it's 20 years from now, you have such a clear memory of those events and even the technology that you had at your disposal at that time, even though it was new technology that could pinpoint where it was. But I remember more from a civilian point of view that there was a lot of confusion in with the press report and the press reports, the miasma of everything going on. There was a lot of confusion and a lot of blame. And you know, on the inside, all the work that the the Coast Guard was doing, the search and rescue efforts. Even though at that time you probably knew it was a recovery efforts, a recovery effort, but the press wasn't necessarily reporting that. Now, what was happening with that disconnect between the truth? and what the press was reporting. Do you remember any of that on that Saturday, like on those, that first day? Yeah, I, it was, I think it was a struggle for the Coast Guard because it was, uh, um, there was dual channel reporting uh, between the district and the, the group. I remember being on a conf- uh, conference call with the BBC in London giving an interview and the policy at that time was if you knew about it, you could talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so I was giving uh, BBC the, the fresh narrative. I'd set up a, uh, uh, a mini joint information center, although we didn't call it that back then mm-hmm. next to my command center. And I, I remember getting a phone call uh, during the interview uh, from my boss in Boston, the, uh, chief of operations. And he said, Hey, we, we got to shut your media operation down because uh, uh, the press is triangulating what you know uh, about the case with what the Admiral is talking to the press about. And there's some inconsistent messaging going on. So for me, that was, uh, I don't know, about 1030 in the morning. For me, that was a, uh, uh, a point of departure from anything close to normalcy dealing uh, with the media because uh, I was putting out fresh information. I couldn't feed it fast enough to the district and the admiral. 
and the media was pointing out the differential between what I was reporting and what the Admiral was reporting. Uh, and at that particular point, everything shifted to uh, the district's responsibility to handle media. And I will tell you, this, this was an epical media event that uh, I think rivaled even the OJ chase in terms of its intensity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I can speak to that as well. I remember it clearly that day. And uh, Admiral Larrabee, who was up at the first, the first Coast Guard District, when he was reporting, did he have a different set of pressures that you had in terms of what you could report on and what you could not report on? In other words, were you hearing anything from the White House or from the Kennedy family, anything different than he was hearing? No, I, I will tell you that throughout this operation, both at the group uh, in Woodsville and the district out of Boston, uh, the White House and the Kennedy family, although the, the family was very persistent about needing fresh information, uh, were incredibly respectful of the Coast Guard, our reputation, and what we were trying to do. The first 40 hours of the operation was entirely focused on finding people alive, even though the debris that was washing ashore uh, indicated that there had been a horrific crash. Publicly, did the Coast Guard have to say it was a search and rescue, but inside you all knew it was more of a recovery effort at that point? I would say after the first 24 hours, there was a solid feeling based on the, uh, the type of uh, debris that was uh, coming ashore, the the plane, the door of the plane that was uh, very crumpled and a few other things that were coming ashore that uh, we were fairly certain at that point that, uh, you know, we were, would eventually be dealing with a recovery operation. In fact, even before the first 40 hours uh, of uh, rescue efforts, uh, transition to recovery, we were beginning to move uh, other assets like NOAA uh, into the area to assist us uh, with the eventual recovery effort because even if we were to find people alive, uh, we knew that because of the interest in the family uh, that we were going to have to recover uh, the airplane as well uh, to avoid uh, novelty seekers uh, mm -hmm. The, you know, obtaining souvenirs. Right. Now, let me ask you your opinion on this. Uh, this was 1999. And back then, and I remember this clearly when I, when at the time in 1999, people had cell phones, but people did not have cameras on their cell phones. They were not smartphones then. And we were still, for the most part, uh, people still use film and their camera. They had digital cameras, of course. Have you ever thought about the difference in the coverage if it were to happen today, even though you've had a long um, exemplary career with the U.S. Coast Guard, you still work for the in the federal government right now. But do you ever think about if you were in charge of Woods Hole today and that plane crash happened with John F. Kennedy Jr., a much older one, how different it would be? Oh, absolutely. I think uh, one of the chief challenges we, we faced probably within the first uh, day was the technology of cell phones was uh, uh, not for the most part 
digital at that time, and it was very easy uh, to be intercepted in the media. The media was intercepting our cell phone conversations, so they had. They were. How do you know that? Well, it it we pieced that together after the fact, and we ended up having to move uh, the media joint information center uh, from its proximate location near our command post at uh, uh, what was then Coast Guard Air Station over to the uh, gymnasium, and that worked well because. Uh, cell phone interception at that time because, uh, because of non-digital interceptions uh, was uh, limited in its uh, distance range. But I, I, to answer your question more, more precisely, I think it would have been an even more intense um, media uh, spectacle than it was even in 99 where we, <clears throat> we saw uh, media trucks, the usual satellite trucks, uh, just engulf this small uh, area around Woods Hole. We had media that were perched above the base in the later sta stages of the case that were trying to get the perfect picture as the bodies were being brought ashore in a 52-foot vessel. I, what I do remember from a point of view, since I was one of those people trying to work that case, <laughs> and what I distinctly remember, yes, I remember all of the trucks and, and all of the, just the coverage from Woods Hole in that very congested area. If anyone's ever driven that, that stretch, it's very congested. Um, I may or may not have gotten on a boat uh, from the Massachusetts um, Environmental Police uh, to report, uh, since I was working for a radio station, it was I was just there with a with a recorder, and was recording and reporting from the search efforts out in the waters. And what I do remember is that there was a shutdown on the press. Like they, the Coast Guard did not want anyone reporting. And at one time, I was you know I was using my maiden name, and there was a coastie that had told me that said. Um, that the, the Admiral had heard that there was a radio reporter out there and mentioned me by my maiden name and said, we cannot have any reporters out there reporting. So do you remember that, that there was just kind of a lockdown that the Coast Guard or the White House, someone did not want people reporting, period? Honestly, Molly, at, at that particular point in the operation, uh, since the district had taken over the public affairs engagement of essentially the world, uh, and, I, and I say that because uh, pre-Facebook and all of that, I, I began to get emails from, from people from around the world who I hadn't heard from in 20 or more years saying, hey, I saw you on TV. Uh, no, I, after the district took over the media profile the first day uh, about uh, noon, uh, I was in full operational mode, shifted things. Mm -hmm. uh, the unified coordination post at uh, Joint Base Cape Cod and started working with 25 other agencies to uh, coordinate more than 50 surface and air platforms uh, and <laughs> helping get them, uh, keeping them safe and uh, finding uh, the victims and eventually recovering them with NOAA and the Navy's help. 
Mm -hmm. Do you remember, uh, and again, I'm coming at this from a civilian point of view. I remember on that Saturday during where everyone was still in this, this search phase, the Massachusetts State Police got involved and they were allowed to do all the press they wanted. And I distinctly remember uh, his last name was Bird. I think it was either Captain Bird or Colonel Bird with the Massachusetts State Police reporting from the shores of Martha's Vineyard. And he was talking about the, the, the efforts and the search efforts. And he had said at one point that the Coast Guard had stopped searching. Uh, he may have said at night or stopped their search efforts. And it was incorrect. And I remember at the time and also, you know, being married to a public relations officer, a public affairs officer in the Coast Guard, there was that frustration that when the Coast Guard can't speak, or if you don't have someone speaking for you, someone will speak for you. And that uh, the Massachusetts State Police, that they were starting to become the ad hoc spokespeople for the Coast Guard. Do you remember that at all? Yeah, I, I remember uh, getting that report, and uh, I remember feeding it up uh, to the district, and I, well, to to make sure everybody knows, we never stopped searching. There might have been a temporary pause at night uh, mm -hmm. because of uh, you know, visibility and conditions. But uh, for the most part, you know, from the get-go, the Coast Guard and the Massachusetts Marine Patrol uh, and other organizations uh, never stopped looking. The, the objectives and how much something is uh, costing Mm -hmm. And um, the survival uh, times and things like that, there were uh, some very critical meetings where we were talking about exit strategies, but those were not uh, public meetings. And uh, once uh, that discussion, I remember it specifically, uh, made its way uh, up the chain of command, uh, there was a discussion between the, the president and uh, I believe uh, Admiral Larrabee and a few other people. Uh, and basically the president uh, gave us a blank check to find America's son. Now, when you mentioned the president at the time, that was President Clinton. And people do remember that he did have uh, you know, affinity for the Kennedys, of course, and the family. And, and I remember the footage on a boat sailing uh, with Jackie, with Jackie O at the time um, uh, before she had passed on. But President Clinton at the time, obviously close to the Kennedys, there was this issue, as you mentioned, about, you know, the resources. And people were questioning publicly, uh, vocally, you know, on television, online media didn't exist then, and social media. Why are we spending so much money to find this particular John? What about John Fisherman? Like, why, why aren't we spending the time on him? But you've, you thought that President Clinton messaged that aspect of it well, correct? Of oh, why the efforts? Absolutely. And I, I, think, uh, I think it was the right decision. Uh, I, think, I think one of the, the challenges of these things is uh, every government agency uh, attempts to treat everyone as equal in terms of their level of effort. But the reality of the matter was uh, this was another president's son. Uh, there would, had we not uh, eventually put the resources in necessary to find him, the public uh, and people with the capability 
outside the government would have found that airplane. Uh, and I, I believe it was the right thing to do to find, find the airplane and the human remains in it, recover them and respect, respectfully uh, spread their ashes at sea from the USS Briscoe. And the USS Briscoe, uh, you mentioned, so that was the, the Navy ship that where they, um, where the family had the service for uh, for JFK Jr., uh, Carolyn and uh, Lauren Bissett. But but there was a Coast Guard cutter, correct, that brought the ashes from from Woods Hole to the uh, Briscoe. Yes, um, I, I just want to frame this uh, from beginning to end. Uh, this entire operation was just five days, 120 hours, that notionally was broken into three pieces, 40 hours of rescue effort, 40 hours of recovery effort, and another 40 hours of planning and final effort to place the ashes respectfully um, over the site of the uh, plane crash. So this was a very intense operation for five days where we were looking, finding, and respectfully uh, places, placing the ashes at sea. And yes, the, I was on the cutter that brought uh, the ashes, the chaplain and some of the family members out, and there were a number of uh, Coast Guard assets that helped bring the family out to the accommodation ladder uh, uh, on the Briscoe. Uh, along with the Navy band. Oh, the Navy band as well. And I re- I remember, I remember being there. I remember, wa- you know, watching it from a distance. What was it like in your career? And you had a, a long career with the Coast Guard. What was it like um, when the cutter took off, the Sanibel took off from Woods Hole and you're with the family there and you're in the position as a commander, you're the leader, you know, on that cutter. What were you thinking? And just what was that moment like for you? Well, uh, first of all, it's surreal. I had, uh, I am from New England, and there was obviously some personal motivations and feelings about uh, working with the family because the Kennedy family, beginning with uh, Jack Kennedy and the brothers, the father, had always been a staple fixture uh, around. Uh, that area, my area, uh, we'd rendered, the Coast Guard rendered assistance to uh, some of them at times. Every mariner knows you need help <laughs> sooner or later. Um, and, and that help is uh, extended to uh, current politicians and former politicians uh, who reside in New England. What was it like? It, honestly, uh, it was surreal for me because uh, one of the mistakes I, I made that I uh, fixed the next time we had a major operation, which was when Egypt Air 990 crashed about uh, three months later. Mm-hmm. I hadn't slept in two and a half days, uh, and I was uh, pretty pretty exhausted. Uh, so for me, it was doubly uh, doubly surreal uh, as the uh, uh, commander of the water forces and. For me, it was just, uh, it was exhausting, it was exhilarating, and it was extremely sad uh, at the same moment. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, w- well said. I, I can't imagine. And when you brought up the the Egypt Air plane crash in the months afterwards, it's 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 so interesting to look back in that time frame, the late '90s to 9/11, when you had TWA and JFK Jr. and Egypt Air, and then leading up to 9/11, those were such and and the O.J. Simpson uh, case, you know, as well. That obviously is a nautical, but still captured the nation's attention. These huge stories and ones just from a from a federal response point of view um, were were big news back then, and they just took over the airways and everybody followed it. And these stories were a lot longer in span, I think, because so much of it was was televised. But now it's so different. Like, do you look at the difference in terms of how these events happen? You know, compare it to back then and what happens now. It's are the events smaller in scope or is it how we transmit the messaging that's, that's changed? Like, do you notice a difference? Yeah, I, I notice uh, a stark difference. I think, um, I think the individual member of the public is now much more able not only to follow what's going on, but to be part of the story. Ah, yes. Given the level of technology, uh, I'll give you an example. If uh, if something horrific like the JFK Jr. crash had occurred today, uh, every one of those people uh, working tirelessly on Philbin Beach to help uh, the 26 agencies involved, uh, the vast majority of them would have taken video. They would have posted clips uh, and there would have been a much, I think the coverage would have been much, much better, certainly more uh, intrusive, if that's an appropriate word to use. Well, what do you mean by much better? What, what do you mean by that? We would well, get to the truth quicker? Well, I think it's the difference uh, between uh, modern day crowdsourcing where ah. you're, you're able to, even in a disaster in the business I'm now in, uh, the the media plans these days are essentially monitoring the news that's being made by the by the average citizen in the field who is often ahead of uh, the name brand media, and that's one to me one of the uh, one of the major differences now is the the ability of the general public to not only be a witness, but a participant to the development of the news story. And I, as intrusively as the 1999 cases were uh, covered by the media, I think uh, I would put, I would put a number and say it would be a hundred times more uh, intrusive and better in terms of the different angles and perspectives. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. There were people who volunteered out of the goodness of their heart to patrol the beaches to find um, things that were known to wash ashore. And some of them became part of the problem because they, they exhausted themselves and they required medical first aid. And I think uh, knowing that every one of them would, would be uh, capable of filming their, their vignette, their part of the story, uh, it, it would have not only made for 
a more complete story about the volunteerism that mm-hmm. took place, but it would have also, uh, I think, uh, dominated the news uh, and spread the news out uh, away from the the main feature of the story, um, the people, the three people who were on that airplane. Yeah, um, Russ, I think you captured the 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 good and the bad of media coverage in these big events um, as they play out now that back then the public could be considered for the most part the mass public the hoi polloi uh, they were more you know intrusive or they were in the way and they were trying to you know they were they were trying to insert themselves in the story perhaps and maybe the media was a little more rabid in in their efforts to to report on the story but nowadays and you pointed out crowdsourcing it's a way to bring more information instead of looking at the public as intrusive that they also can be subject matter experts or that are bringing information that and shedding information and shedding light on information that other people wouldn't have so a, a, a double-edged sword there's good and bad yeah exactly and i haven't even talked about uh, drones that are now uh, uh, can be very positive and also a challenge for rescue operations or uh, being able to map out certain things and get to places that uh, even the media couldn't get to uh, or places they shouldn't be in. So, Oh, could you imagine drones (laughs) if this happened now? Oh my goodness. (laughs) No. Oh my gosh. The Coast Guard would be dealing with that as well. Just as someone who is a bystander, pretty close bystander, but a bystander nonetheless, the Coast Guard did amazing efforts, um, you know, through that search, and it was such a condensed time frame when that did happen. It was such a short period of time, and your work was stellar then, and everyone working in the Coast Guard did amazing work. But if you were to look at it, you were the commander, so you were a leader. Were there any lessons that you learned? You had touched on the fact that you would have let yourself um, have more rest, uh, you know, to prepare and just be, you know, reinvigorated for challenges in an emergency. But were there any other lessons that you learned from a leadership perspective in managing operation to that magnitude that that would help you, whether it's a large scale event or a small one that you maybe apply to your job today, still working with the federal government? Yeah, absolutely. Probably the the seminal lesson, Molly, is that uh, nobody is ready for one of these black swan events that you can even imagine. What was critical, I think, to our success as an agency and the other agencies involved, uh, you know, Mass Environmental Police, the NOAA, Navy, uh, and the many other uh, agencies that made this a unified effort. We had been planning together, uh, the the majority of us, with the exception of the Navy uh, and NOAA, uh, for a year and a half prior to the uh, JFK Jr. crash. Uh, And even before I got there, we were planning for a high-capacity passenger vessel tragedy at sea where one of the steamship ferries uh, got into trouble and we needed to uh, account for people, move them off of uh, one ferry or a sinking ferry, uh, and move them uh, to critical care facilities and accounting uh, locations. And that preparation, I think, was the critical factor in us having a pre-wired, pre-identified, unified command post at the Coast Guard Air Station. And we were ready 
uh, for an at-sea calamity. Uh, it just uh, wasn't a steamship ferry that with 1,500 people that was in trouble. It was uh, three people uh, who were of national interest who crashed in a small plane seven miles southwest of Martha's Vineyard. So mm-hmm. that, that for me was the biggest lesson. You don't have to be ready for the exact uh, type of black swan you're approaching. Uh, you have to be ready for a complex operation, and that will cover about 70% of your needs. Oh, okay. So, And that's a good point. So the black swan event, also known as the unknown unknowns uh, event, where you can never truly plan for it, but if you if you have planning for some type of large-scale event or just events in general, that you'll be well-positioned to be able to manage it. Yeah, there were a couple of things. Uh, uh, at the time, the Coast Guard was struggling with uh, having enough senior people who were watch standers uh, versus having enough junior people. And we learned the hard way uh, because we had a, a fatigue study ongoing at the time that our radio watch standers who were in a 12-hour watch and our group duty officers who were the senior uh, operational decision-making uh, elements we're in a 24-hour watch, and we we learned pretty quickly that you should not have uh, anyone standing uh, more than 12 hours of watch uh, at a time. Uh, the folks in the radio room transitioned from normal the normal busy summer operations to the incredibly insane busy uh, aftermath of the plane crash uh, without trouble, uh, whereas the group duty officers uh, who were in a 24-hour watch, really, really struggled and ended up in their red zone fatigues, uh, fatigue zone. Uh, and policy changed after that to give us more people, uh, more senior decision-making people. The other piece, uh, which was a national lesson learned, had to do with uh, uh, a regional incident commander, national incident commander concept, uh, whereby uh, a lonely uh, group commander like myself uh, could be uh, more efficiently augmented in the incident command system by having a pre-designated uh, in staff regional or national incident command center staff that does things like the media, uh, the political interventions, uh, and resource brokering to other from other groups uh, and other agencies to help. Uh, that was an abject lesson learned that. Uh, got fixed uh, fairly quickly after the JFK Jr. case. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a good lesson to not forget uh, your staff and the well-being of your staff. And I, I find just in my work with uh, crisis management and, and doing trainings and, and speaking that this idea of your employee stakeholder and taking care of them has become a lot more important than it was back in the day. You know, leaders are recognizing that they need to be mindful of events and how they impact their employees as well and their families. I know if anyone wants to find out more information about you, because you, you are a U.S. Coast Guard historian and author, and you have some published books out there, correct? Yeah, I have a, a new book that was published in uh, 2019. My focus is on contemporary rescue cases, and uh, I wrote a book called Lost in Charleston Wave. Uh, that is available on my website, and I'm currently working on a book, uh, Finding America's Son, about the JFK Jr. case. 
And if anybody's listening out there, I'm, I'm looking for an agent. <laughs> oh, you are? <laughs> okay. Now, so you're writing a book about the JFK Jr. case. Um, did you uncover anything that you had forgotten or in your research, anything that you didn't know that you learned oh, from writing the book? Absolutely. Uh, I have some close friends at uh, NOAA who, and the Navy who've been very helpful in uh, providing me uh, information. Uh, and, and the book is just, again, focused on those five days of intensive effort and a behind-the-scenes look of uh, government operations and decisions. Uh, yeah, my, my friends at NOAA, uh, as an example, have come up with one-of-kind uh, type of uh, charting and, and a, a narrative about how close we came to not finding JFK Jr.'s plane uh, and the professionalism and persistence of, of their, their people in making sure we did. So there are some wonderful behind-the-scenes stories about uh, uh, their operations as well as the Navy operations and uh, a few not-so-funny things that happened uh, uh, during the operation that are uh, a real-life exposure of humanity. Well, I, I have to ask you, uh, when you said that how they almost didn't find the wreckage, was it only because of the technology that NOAA provided that they were able to find it, that if they didn't have that, it would have been possible that the wreckage would never have been found? Keep in mind, the airplane is uh, incredibly small. It's, it's a uh, needle within a haystack within a field of haystacks when it's sitting on the bottle bottom, depending on the, the depending on the aspect of the airplane, and in the case of uh, this particular aircraft, its uh, perspective, its angle was such that uh, uh, only through the persistence of one person who saw this very tiny uh, reflection from the sonar technology, side scan tonar technology at the time, which has uh, also gone, gone through its revolution. Only through the persistence of one, this one individual were uh, the people who were searching uh, under the underwater uh, able to go back and look at something that most people had dismissed, which eventually ended up being the airplane. Was it someone from NOAA? Yes. Oh, that's interesting. And so at that time, no one really knew, like, what would you say, like, the true search area was where they suspected that the plane was there? Was it much larger than we now know, or was it much smaller? I, I would say most people were not aware that the search area was, oh, I'll call it five by five miles. And I think most people thought it was much larger than that. And the the hindcast picture again put it uh, in a mile and a half around the actual uh, location where the plane was found. So I would say that most people uh, were unaware uh, of how a how difficult it is to find anything on the bottom, and b uh, even within a relatively small twenty-five mile square search area. I, I think. The technology uh, which is resident in Woodsville right now is such that they're using these uh, autonomous pre-programmed uh, torpedo-like uh, 
sonar devices that can are so sophisticated that they can navigate down underwater uh, tunnels that are filled with water in the water supply system and map and chart the in, internal piping and waterways uh, for 40 or 50 miles and then pop up uh, on the distant end at an outflow point and basically allow you to change the batteries and recover the data, put new batteries in, put in new programming, and then send the uh, underwater search uh, side scan device back on its way for mission number two. Uh, back in 99, you had uh, the original side scan sonar technology that Harold Edgerton from my, uh, MIT uh, had created, uh, and it had to be drugged behind uh, a Coast Guard buoy tender to, and two NOAA vessels uh, and physically recovered uh, and, you know, put, put back out there after a much more laborious uh, process. I think today's, uh, today's uh, devices are much more independent they're quicker to recover the data, and the quality of the data is greatly enhanced. So I have no doubt okay. that it would have taken uh, some some metric less time to find uh, the airplane. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Russ, for the time uh, to speak with me and my listeners about your experiences with the JFK Jr. plane crash, the tragic, uh, the tragic plane crash that took the lives of John F. Kennedy Jr., his wife, Carolyn, and her sister, Lauren Bissett. For more information, uh, people can find you at your website, wrussellwebster.com, where they can read a lot of your, a, a lot of your work uh, on, on history of these stories that have happened with the Coast Guard, and of course, your upcoming book about JFK Jr. Well, thank you very much, Molly. It's uh... It's been fun. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Captain Webster. And thank you for all of your service, your 26 years of service with the Coast Guard. And as you continue on with FEMA. All right. Thanks again, Molly. 20 years after the death of JFK Jr. and his wife, Carolyn Bissett Kennedy, and sister-in-law, Lauren Bissett, the public's interest is still so strong. But I believe that event was a true black swan event that we won't ever see the likes of again. My sincere gratitude to my guest, Captain W. Russell Webster, U.S. Coast Guard retired, for joining me on this episode of the podcast. You can find out more information about Russ Webster and his work as a U.S. Coast Guard historian on his website at wrusselwebster.com. Um. 